presenting John Gabriel, the undisputed king of stuff. What is up, podcasts? This is your favorite podcast host, John Gabriel, and your favorite podcast on earth, the king of stuff. And uh, why don't we just get right to our guest? Had a fantastic interview. Uh, great to talk to somebody that I interviewed when I first began this podcast, however many years ago that was. I think the second episode, we had David Limbaugh, and he loved that experience so much that, I don't know, five, six years later, he decided to come back. So that is the advantage of King of Stuff, loyalty, guest loyalty, very important to a growing, budding show. But David Limbaugh, he's written yet another book. I don't know how he writes so many books. I think this is number 11 for him. Well, David Limbaugh, along with his daughter, Kristen Limbaugh Bloom, uh, wrote last in the series. He's been doing the series talking about Christianity. And this book is called The Resurrected Jesus, The Church in the New Testament. Really great read. These things sell like hotcakes. And this was just released, I think, last Tuesday. So about a week ago. You've, you know, David Limbaugh is obviously the brother of the late great Rush Limbaugh and, um, a very prominent commenter in his own right, uh, appearing talking about politics, culture, and now most of all religion. So, uh, check out this interview and I will catch you on the other side. Welcome, David. Wonderful to have, uh, you on. And I just want to note to the listeners, I think I had interviewed you for this podcast five, six years ago in episode like number two or three, something along those lines, when I had a different co-host and all sorts of things. You're one of the first guys I talked to, so it's wonderful to have you back so you can talk about you and your daughter's new book. Appreciate that. Yeah, I remember that. I can't remember who your co-host was, though. I mean, I Some do remember. A fellow named Jim Sharp, a shady character. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Yeah, he does radio here in Phoenix. He's the morning drive guy, and uh, he's doing he's doing great. And uh, he owes me, I don't know, a nice uh, Mexican meal sometime soon here. Well, why don't you tell us about uh, your books? Have been wildly popular. They're very well done. And the latest, uh, kind of in the Jesus series, is the resurrected Jesus. You wrote it, not only you, but also your daughter, which I think is a cool idea. I've got two daughters. Uh, yeah. Kristen Limbaugh Bloom. So why don't you tell us about uh, what you're focusing on in this book and how it differs from the other in the series? Okay, the first, thank you. <clears throat> the first book was Jesus on Trial, which was a chronicling of my faith journey from skeptic to believer, and then uh, an apologetic, a reason for the uh, defense of the faith and you know the things that finally convinced me that Christianity was true. <clears throat> and uh, the next one was the Emmaus Code, which was all about Jesus in the Old Testament, the prophecies uh, and that type of thing uh, that signaled that he was mentioned throughout the Old Testament. He was hinted at throughout the Old Testament. Um, I mean, directly referenced, in fact, except without by name. The, the third one was uh, the true Jesus, which was a chronological compendium of the Gospels, all four Gospels together in chronological order to the best extent I was able to do that. And then the next one, which is the last one before this one, was uh, Jesus is Risen, which was about the book of Acts and the Apostle Paul's first six epistles. This is the Apostle, this book, uh, The Resurrected Jesus, is about the Apostle Paul's uh, last seven epistles. They're the prison epistles that he wrote while he was 
uh, in under house arrest in Rome and the pastoral epistles that he wrote to his colleagues and, and understudies, Timothy and Titus. Yeah, I think, and I think especially because you're writing it along with your daughter, this is good uh, for a lot of folks who are unfamiliar with it. And something that must seem strange to you, it definitely does to me too, is just the concept, you mentioned something like, I don't know, you're in a group of young people and you mentioned the Good Samaritan. They're familiar with the phrase, but if you actually read them the story, they're like, I've never heard that before. And Yeah, it's kind of amazing. You just kind of grew up around it. You did your Bible stories as a little kid or you went to Sunday school. And um, well, this, these seemed, these, this whole series really seems to introduce, and this one in particular seems to introduce uh, Paul uh, you know, obviously a pivotal figure in the New Testament, and it's just a fantastic uh, point of entry for people who might be intimidated to start off with the Bible itself, or uh, it, it's great for people like me. Yeah, we might have read it a few times, but it's always great to have a fresh perspective. <laughs> that That's right, and, and thank you for that, but it, it, it is, this is, a, we go through every chapter and verse of these seven epistles that Paul wrote, four to the churches, yeah, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, and Philippians, and the the other three to the the two the three two guys Timothy and Titus. We we go through chapter and verse and either state the verse or paraphrase the verse, and then add our add in our insights or commentary from biblical theological experts and some of the um, early church fathers added the their commentary, which I. I find just totally fascinating what these guys it really is thinking, you know, 2000 years ago, as the scriptures hot off the presses, almost, so to speak, they're giving their ideas about what it means. Uh, and they are of course, intimately involved with it. Uh, and so in, intimately involved with the Christian uh, religion at that point. And so I, I find, I find their uh, insights fascinating. And then we did something new on this book that I haven't done on any of the other books my daughter, Kristen, who, with whom I co-wrote this book, is a prayer warrior. She's spirit-filled, and she. I just had the idea that in addition to her helping me write it, I would like her to initially author prayers throughout the text so that the, the reader would be interactive with the text and with the Bible and with the various content of these letters. And so the, it's not just random prayers. It's prayers tied to the the very content of the things we're trying to explain. So she really has a facility for prayer, and I find the prayers in here very moving, and and I I love that part of it. It breaks up the text too, and you know every few pages, whatever at the end of each section, we we add prayers, and I I don't know, I just find that that makes this book qualitatively different from the others, uh, and it it makes this kind of a devotional in addition to a, a lay commentary of these books. Yeah, and one thing that's good too, and yeah, I'm not used to seeing these kind of these prayers interspersed throughout, but it really does give you a balance of. I, I'm very good with the head knowledge. I I like facts and can rattle them off, and then I you know actually don't listen to God when he. <laughs> well, that's that's <laughs> what he tells me what to do, and you know I'm not talking with him, and I'm not just keeping my yap shut and trying to listen. For guidance and uh this prayer is good because it kind of balances that head knowledge with the heart as well yeah that's that's my problem too i err on the side of head knowledge and she is very 
into the hard aspect and it inspires me to do that more. And I think it will inspire the reader to do that more and, and to engage with scripture and, and, and develop a practice of prayer. You know, I'm, I'm much better at Bible study than, than prayer, but we all need to uh, be disciplined about it. That's why they call it spiritual disciplines. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's just a, a fascinating process, I think. And I think it'll be encouraging and inspirational for readers. Yeah. I hope so, anyway. Yeah, definitely. The book also covers, and it, something interesting I've seen over the past few years is you had like 15 years ago, all these angry new atheists who are yeah, mocking yeah. religion and mocking, how can anybody believe this ridiculous stuff? Well, now all of the ones who are still around who have podcasts and stuff, they're talking <laughs> about UFOs and taking psychedelics. And, and I'm like, Okay, yeah, you know you need something transcendent, and you can't find it in just this materialist world. And something this book also talks about is just talking about the reality of spiritual warfare. And um, at this point, if you can't look around at the news cycle and not see crazy demons running around, I don't know what to tell you. But um, how would you address (laughs) skeptics who just might go, what? That's just made up. What, What are you talking about? To you and me, it's just like, well, yeah, obviously uh, we're dealing <laughs> with an unseen realm. But uh, what do you say to people who are kind of the strict scientific materialists? Well, I, I find that uh, that's a great question. What you alluded, alluded to earlier, some there's a god, there's a god void in everyone's hearts, and some people will fill it with the true religion. Other people will fill it with idolatrous pursuits, such as radical environmentalism, and that's why that. They treat uh, environmentalism as a religion. That's why you can't get through to them. They they claim to be about facts and science, but in reality, they suppress any opposing views. Uh, and this is true in the, in the environmental movement. It was true in the COVID thing. They they just they can't allow, countenance anything different because they adhere to these things religiously. In fact, the entire political left, I think, makes leftist ideology. Uh, their religion. I don't think there's any question about it. And you, you can't, you can't really reason with them. Uh, and all you can do is defeat them and do it in a, in a winsome way. And you can be respectful, obviously, but don't delude yourself and think that you're going to convert these people or that by reaching across the aisle, you're going to get anywhere. All you will get is uh, a diminution of your own position and a weakening of the United States of America. But the spiritual warfare thing, these Radical materialists who reject the supernatural. See, I, I don't get that at all because now I'm not a guy that goes around and finds ghosts and goblins in every nook and cranny. But the, the very creation of the universe, the very existence of the universe is self-evidence of uh, the supernatural. And the, there's no way that there, you can explain the, the creation, the existence of matter, much less living beings, uh, without reference to the supernatural, because it's not possible that something developed out of nothing. And, and I, I find, you know, you talk about these atheists, these radical atheists like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and the rest. When you press them about how uh, the world, how, how, you know, how the universe was created or the multi- whatever, they, they always change the subject. No, you've got the burden of proof. No, well, it's not a game. We're trying to explore truth here. So how did it happen? Well, oh, well, no, there was no God, but 
probably aliens deposited us. Are there other beings on multiverse? Well, who created them? Yeah, it, right. It's amazing to me. How do they not care about their own eternal destiny? Do, is it just about scoring points in a debate? And by the way, I don't see how you score points in a debate when you take such absurd, logically absurd positions. But so there's no question. And I never, even though when I was a skeptic, I was never a skeptic about the existence of God. I find it preposterous that people think that this could have just happened. And, and then they redefine physics. Well, no, it could have been created out of nothing. Yeah, but then they redefine nothing as having energy in it. And, and, and really, it blows my mind. But but um, so so spiritual warfare, there's no question. I've never had a, a problem understanding, uh, uh, accepting the fact that we have su the supernatural. Uh, yes, it's a little difficult to believe that there are certain things behind, behind the scenes. But <clears throat> the, the Apostle Paul talks about uh, spiritual warfare and the, the principles and powers of the world, the, 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 the forces that you see, the physical forces you see uh, are, are not all there is to it. And there are spiritual forces and Paul's very explicit about it. And we have to gird ourselves. We have to arm ourselves uh, with, to, to, with the full armor of God. And by that, I think he means the, the word of God, reading the word and, and prayer and uh, the other spiritual disciplines so that we can become, uh, so that we will be in a position to guard ourselves against these spiritual forces. Now, I, I don't see any other explanation for what's going on in this world today uh, than spiritual demonic forces. Who could possibly envi have envisioned not just the countenance of evil, the rampant evil we're seeing in the, in the country today, in the world today, but the celebration of it. Who would think that there's an entire half of the population celebrating the murder of babies or the mutilation of children or the confusion of genders uh, in, in contradiction of God's created order? And when you approach people about this, they won't, they'll, they'll shift definitions. They will say that good is bad, bad is good, that exclusivity is inclusivity. I mean, we, the, the, the liberals, the left says that. They want everything to be inclusive. And what they mean by that is excluding people who don't agree with them about everything. It, it is it is twilight zone on steroids in this world. And, and I I'm I'm shaking my head every day at the positions they take. And I, I it, it blows my mind. But the, the, but the pervasiveness of evil, the illogic of these people are really further proof that there is a God, and that God is the triune God of the Bible, because the, the biblical worldview explains all of this in, in a way that's coherent, and no other religion, no other worldview comes close. Yeah, I agree completely, and I'm sorry, a few years ago when there was rioting in Portland every night, and they would show either videos or photographs, like mugshots of the Antifa protesters, like, oh yeah, that, that dude's possessed, it's just... <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. And I'm, you know, my first job out of high school was in the Navy operating nuclear reactors. And I, yeah, so science, very important. And the spiritual world exists and you can see it around you every day for uh, the good side and the, the bad side. And it's, it's absurd. The, 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 the original Christians were scientists. There is no right. incompatibility between science and Christianity. I mean, God created science. But you don't politicize science. That's what they do. 
Like I said, they did it in COVID. They're doing it with environmentalism. They do it in, in macroevolution and Darwinism, which, by the way, that's another thing we're supposed to accept on faith. And if you dare even question it, you're a moron. I mean, I, I don't know how you feel about it. I think Darwinism, to the extent that it's accepted, is one of the biggest hoaxes ever per- perpetrated on mankind. They can't substantiate the fossil record. There, there's, there's, uh, they can't explain, as I said before, how something evolved from nothing, and yet it all is somehow. Uh, and how the and how the Cambrian explosion, where all these things uh, ended up at the same time, all the fossils. I, I and they don't even bother. They just sneer. And all these dinosaur things. You go to these museums. These are not actual. They're reconstructed stuff out of theories, just like their environmentalism is based on computer models. And they manipulate those models and they don't have any idea what they're talking. And I'm telling you, um, they exclude any other uh, any opposition opinion by saying there's a consensus. Well, so what? You don't you don't define truth in science by a so-called consensus. You don't take a vote and it's never totally settled. They talk about settled science by definition. Science is not permanently settled ever because it's always subject to being change. And, and we saw that in COVID, by the way, that there's their science didn't last five minutes, any of it. <laughs> right. and, then, and did they, John, did they ever apologize? No, no. Have they to this day? They, they all say the science changed or something like that. And, and, like, and no. by the way, that, yes. And they didn't, they didn't say, oh, we didn't know what they said was we're absolutely sure at the time, if they would have said our best guess are based on the scientific uh, studies we've done in this very short period of time lead us to believe you ought to sell se- separate by six feet and then later they they have credibility no they said it's absolute now they're admitting there was no science behind the six foot uh separation between people and the rest of it that the the idea that if you don't take a uh, if you don't get vaccinated you can't go out in public and you're denied places when we know now the vax did not prevent you from getting uh, the disease, nor did it prevent you from spreading it. But they're adamant, and they're still preventing these these tennis players from coming in. They won't ever give up. It's like it's like the 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 radical bureaucracy that will not be accountable and will not ever admit its mistakes. And the rest of us are. And then these same people, these reality deniers, while saying we're denying it, will will claim that we're the ones who are distorting reality. And, and, and it really, it really, it's like, no, it's 1984. There is nothing newspeak. There, it's, it's not what you see. I, really, these people are, it's like they're gaslighting an entire uh, half of the population. Right. And they're gaslighting us, but they know in their heart of hearts that they're full of it. <laughs> so well, well, well. It's not very convincing. I'm not sure that I think there's so many dupes that trust these evil people at the top pulling the strings. I think the, the rank and file liberals do not get it. And I think that they're, they're under some spell. It, it's, it, I know it sounds crazy, but how do you explain it? How do you explain that, that their, their claim that half of the people, the, the people who just love apple pie in America and the second amendment and the first amendment, how do you, how do you, how do you explain they're really denominating us as terrorists? How do you explain that they think that they can suppress our speech and cancel us in the name of the First Amendment? Because we are 
we we want to protect the First Amendment, and the only way we can do that is to shut up people whose speech could lead to violence, which they say subjectively. And it's the, the exact opposite, by the way. They're, they're the ones whose speech is more likely to ignite violence, and yet we don't ever advocate shutting them up. It ought to tell you something when you look at which side is distorting the truth and which side is trying to shut the other side up. We're the ones who have nothing to fear from the truth, so we don't mind them talking all day long. In fact, we invite it because they expose themselves the more they talk. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that was a classic David Limbaugh rant, everybody. That's, <laughs> that's why I was so happy. He was like, oh, he has a new book. He needs to be on the show. Uh, and um, yeah, it's just and the thing that I've been pointing out repeatedly in my columns and so forth is just uh, how when people don't vote the way Democrats want them to vote. That's a threat to democracy. I'm like, wait a minute. They are voting that. That is uh, yeah. democracy. And, and John, they're the authoritarians. They're the ones who, who want uh, unelected judges, unaccountable judges to make law instead of interpreting the law. They're the ones who say that when the a majority of the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, they're activist judges, even though Roe versus Wade is not based on any constitutional uh, grounding. So all the court did was say, you know, after 50 years, we're, we're done with this. We finally got a majority on the court that had the guts to do it. And they they overruled they They reversed it. They overruled it because it is not grounded in the Constitution. And Pelosi and the rest of them say, no, you're the activist because you changed our activist precedent. (laughs) But but the ordinary uh, citizen does not understand. They're not sophisticated. And by the way, they're not any less intelligent than I am, probably more, but they're not not into the law and the Constitution. Now, a lot of people on our side are, but the other side, I, I just... I mean, they, they just believe whatever these people say. I, I I don't know. It's it's depressing. But most of these people on the other side have no problem with the court making law because they could never get elected. The majority of Americans would never support the kinds of things they want to do through the political branches because they're too extreme. So they they love the court making these laws and advancing their extremist agenda in a, in, in, in a, in a branch that was not accountable and didn't have to be uh, elected yeah and obviously their attack on anybody who is a person of faith you know uh, new york times is going after orthodox jews right now and uh it, it's just crazy what do you see is the big threats to the church these days um because something you talk about in the book is just all the obviously massive threats to the church when Paul was writing these letters from prison in or out of prison, what are the big threats today? Do you see? And that's a timeless phenomenon too. In the first century, Paul planted these churches uh, around the Mediterranean basin and Asia and the rest. And after he planted these churches, and I find this fascinating because the, the Bible tells the stories and struggles of real human beings. It's not some abstract, uh, set of principles, uh, some uh, theological principles, moral living. It, 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 it although it has those, it, it has those. It tells those stories through the lives of real people that we know existed. And so Paul uh, planted these churches. Let's say in in Ephesus, Corinth, uh, Philippi, uh, and the and the rest. And right after he he planted them, well, not right after, 
they they are developing, they're struggling, they're having internal struggles about who's got who should run the church. And Paul, you know, did his best to set it up and set up a framework for how they should organize and handle the church and administer the church. But when he when he goes around, he's in a hurry, you know, he's got a he's he has a limited amount of time. He's slow travel in those days. And then he gets imprisoned. So so he's he's he finds that these churches are deviating from the, the true doctrine and he hears about it. So he he's troubled, he's grieved, he writes letters then directly to the churches and says, You have got to purge yourselves of these false teachers who are who are uh, introducing heresies because we have heresies in the church. Obviously, the Christian religion is going to die in its infancy only if you if if it preaches a true gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, which is salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ, uh, and and uh, many other things, but that's the central one. If you deviate from that, then the church will not grow, and if it does grow, it'll do it in a in a form that's uh, ineffective because you we don't combine other religions with Christianity. That is to say, we're, we're very tolerant toward other religions and all, but Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to the Father except through me, and it's salvation by faith alone. When when the Judaizers in the early churches, the people who wanted to continue to have the impose the Jewish rules, that what they're really doing is adding some kind of works to faith, and when you add works to faith, you're diminishing the finished work of Jesus on the cross. If we human beings needed to do something to save ourselves, I don't think God would have sent his son to, in human form to suffer the indignities of human existence, then be persecuted and punished, tortured, and die on the cross uh, so that we could be saved. He wouldn't have done that if we could save ourselves by our own bootstraps. And so when these early uh, leaders in the church some early false teachers in the church would say, yes, you have to have faith in Christ for salvation, but you also have to be circumcised. You also have to adhere to the Jewish dietary laws. Now, again, Christians love Jews and have a heart for Jews, and this has nothing to do with denigrating Jews. This is uh, historical. Uh, I'm just, I'm just uh, relating the historical facts of what occurred in these churches, that the Judaizers, the ones who insisted on putting back the Jewish uh, rules, Paul said, you cannot have that. That's you got you can get circumcised if you want. You can obey, you can obey these dietary laws if you want, but don't don't dilute and pollute the gospel by saying those things are essential for salvation, because then people won't understand that it's not about them, it's about Jesus. You're not going to put your faith in Jesus if you think you need to do something too, other than put your faith. Now, once you put your faith in him, and once you're converted, and once you're born again, and once you're a Christian, then you're 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 uh, you're saved for salvation purposes. You're declared legally righteous, so that when you die, uh, God doesn't look upon your sins. He looks at the veil of Jesus Christ, the sinlessness of Jesus Christ, and you're saved. But after you're saved, then you begin a faith walk through the power of the Holy Spirit, who now indwells you as a believer, and through exercises, exercising the spiritual disciplines, prayer, and Bible study, you become more sanctified. You become more holy as you are on your Christian walk. You become more Christ-like. And of course, you exercise effort uh, to engage in those spiritual disciplines. As you know, you and I go, well, we don't pray enough. Well, you got we got to discipline ourselves to do that. So there is effort involved in that. 
but it's not a matter of salvation. It's a matter of becoming more sanctified by becoming closer to God. But so that was one uh, heresy. The others were kind of sent, could be categorized around those who either accept, either diminished or rejected Christ's full divinity or his full humanity. So the Gnostics or the precursors to the Gnostics said, because they really arose more in the second century, they, excuse me, they would argue that material matter was evil. So Jesus couldn't have been a real human being. That had to be an illusion. And he really couldn't have died on the cross because he wasn't physical. So it was all an illusion. Uh, he's all God, not man. Well, that, John, that totally destroys Christian doctrine that Jesus had to have been a human being for the salvation scheme to work. He had to come down, live among us, suffer so that that his so that he could die for the sins of mankind and so that we could relate to him as a human being into eternity. Jesus will always be 100 percent God and 100 percent man. And so they would deny that he was. And that was a terrible heresy that Paul had to correct in these letters. And so they become doctrinal statements as well as instructions for Christian living in the church. I'm going fast because I know we don't have much time. But the other one, a lot of a lot of the uh, some of the other heresies were those who would deny the uh, the deity of Christ and said, no, he was just a superhuman. And some some religions do that today. Um, I don't know if the Mormons do, but uh, the the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I'm not denigrating them. I'm not criticizing. I'm just merely stating a fact. And I'm not even sure it's a fact, but I'm pretty sure it's a fact that at least it doesn't matter which religion. Some reject Jesus's divinity. Well, if you reject his divinity, you've also negated Christianity because Jesus's death on the cross, he wouldn't have been able to live a sinless life and he wouldn't have been able to, uh, his death wouldn't have counted to, to cancel out all the the sins of past, the past, present, and future sins of all of mankind and those who had faith in him if he weren't God. So he has to be fully man and fully God. And it's so bizarre. C.S. Lewis would talk about the, the whole Christian idea is just queer enough, meaning odd enough, uh, the, the Brits, and the queer used to mean odd. And, 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 he, and it's just weird, queer enough that it has to be true. It's the kind of thing that just rings true. And it, it is true. And I've had this feeling as I've studied the Bible that it's just, it's not, you're not trying to, they're not trying, the, 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 the biblical authors always talk about the warts and all of themselves and of the characters. If it was something they're trying to make perfect, they would say, no, we didn't have any sin. We didn't. No, it's just so real when people get into the Bible. So our purpose, one of our main purposes is to encourage people to read the Bible because we think it's its own apologetic. We think if people really immerse themselves in the Bible, that they will become closer to Christ or they will find Christ if they haven't already. And so these this these books are to facilitate that that process for the lay reader or for the early, the beginning Christian. Yeah. Well that is that is fantastic. And and yeah, uh, something that comforts me and all my weaknesses is seeing how compared to all other ancient literature, which is all about here's how awesome and mighty I am and I have no flaws. Um, this is like, look, I might be an idiot, but God's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, the Bible's the, way, the only ancient book that has that pose. Nobody can ever accuse me after listening to this podcast of <laughs> not being ADHD or having tangential <laughs> uh, tangents on steroid. I mean, I'm 
I'm sorry. It's just the, I, I was, God created me to be off the wall. <laughs> and that's awesome. I'm ADHD too. So I completely enjoy. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I've never been diagnosed. I've never been diagnosed, but it has to be the case. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, everybody rush out now to your local or online bookseller, The Resurrected Jesus, The Church of the New Testament, written by not only our, our wonderful guest, David Limbaugh, but also his daughter, Kristen Limbaugh Bloom. Thanks so much, David, for uh, chatting with our listeners. Appreciate it. John, thank you so much. Appreciate it. You know, the problem with David is he's such a shrinking violet. He doesn't say what he thinks. He minces about great to have him on though um as always check out that book um there are links in the show notes of course wanted to talk about other news of the day really of the week ukraine is uh taking advantage of uh, how horrible the russian troops are and it's been making many many inroads uh, capturing more territory in the past week than russia has in the past several months so uh good for them um, I'm still a little concerned about it because Putin is really cornered. Now he has some politicians who are calling for him to resign. Of course, those government officials were immediately um, investigated by the police. So uh, we don't know what's going to happen, if they're going to be shipped to Siberia or whatever. So um, we always kind of hope for a deus ex machina kind of coup situation. The problem is any kind of coup, um, whoever replaced him would probably be tougher on Ukraine and on the Russian people. So it's a very difficult situation there, but good for Ukraine. Uh, let's just hope that uh, Putin doesn't feel overly cornered because he's very loose with the talks about using tactical nukes. And we, of course, do not want that. Best case scenario is uh, Ukraine remains intact and the war ends, so people will stop dying. Um, it's been just an utterly useless war and ill-advised, and I don't know what Putin thought he was doing by doing this, but pretty awful. Um, I don't know if you saw the video yesterday, but Joe Biden had a big celebration. See, what's wonderful is inflation is what? I think it came out that it was 8.3% now, which is still horrible. It's not uh, hitting the highest uh, numbers since in the past 40 years, as the past few months have done. But he's celebrating and he credits his utterly useless Inflation Reduction Act, which, of course, has nothing to do with inflation at all. Even those on the left are calling it a big green energy thing or a healthcare thing. They are not calling it inflation reduction since it spends a whole bunch more money, which is how you fuel inflation, not how you destroy inflation. But he thought it was great news that America is sitting at 8.3% inflation, which is probably the highest um, pre-Biden, highest in 30 years or so. It's still really bad. Interest rates keep shooting up. The Fed is talking about increasing interest rates more, so it's very tough on especially new home buyers. They're the ones who really get the short end of the stick on this. But um, he thought it was time for a party, time for a celebration. So he gave an incoherent speech at the White House and uh, characterized it as a big party for the country. Uh, inflation is fixed. Everything's great. Uh, people aren't really feeling that way. But for some strange reason, he carted out James Taylor. What is it with Democrats and James Taylor? John Kerry, um, after the terrorist attacks in Paris, at the Bataclan and other places, I think that's the name of it, Bataclan, concert venue, horrible attack. And what um, John Kerry did, there's also the Charlie Hebdo incident where uh, journalists were killed for posting photos of 
um, Mohammed artwork related to Mohammed, things like that. Not actually photos. I don't think they had cameras in the year 600s, but he sent James Taylor over to sing We Got a Friend, and everybody rolled their eyes. Well, now uh, Joe Biden has carted out James Taylor again, whose last hit was probably 1971, something like that. But for some reason, man, those boomers and even pre-boomers like Biden, they love them some James Taylor. It's just terrible. What's interesting about it is even news networks cut away from the coverage of the speech, thinking it was very embarrassing. CNN Okay, this is great. CNN is covering it live. And uh, he, they, their headline was, Biden celebrates passage of his Inflation Reduction Act. And on the same screen, the split screen, they show the stock market plummeting well over a thousand points. Horrible day for the stock market. But to their credit, even the CNN host noticed that it was a bit incongruous that the Dow is taking a beating at the same time Biden celebrating, hey, our economy's back, folks. And the CNN host said, feels like it's a hard time to be celebratory. So, yeah, it, it is a tough time to do that. Biden has a tin ear on these things. But let me get back to James Taylor. What is it with this guy? I, I don't get it. He shows it at Democratic conventions. Is there a big constituency for James Taylor in the year of our Lord 2022? Like I said, the guy hasn't been relative, uh, relevant in 50 years or so. And they keep wheeling him out. Nobody wants to hear him sing Fire and Rain, which actually a guy on Twitter replied to me that Fire and Rain are the only two commodities that um, are at about the same price as they were before Biden took office. So good for him on that. But uh, many people have noted it's a song about James Taylor's drug addiction, a childhood friend committed suicide. It talks about that. So a pretty morbid tune. But oh my gosh, all I can think of is John Belushi in Animal House where he sees the folky playing his guitar. He grabs the guitar and smashes it against the wall, quickly saying, sorry, that's kind of what the American people wanted to do with James Taylor's guitar. But I'm sorry, James Taylor, uh, some people on Twitter, because I was making fun of him, believe if you can believe that, were saying, oh, don't you like a couple of his songs? No, it's horrible. And I think part of it is I grew up with that Namby Pamby burned out hippie vibe that uh, people like him, Carly Simon... Joni Mitchell kind of fits in. Carol King, I was inundated with that as a child. It was everywhere. And it was kind of, look, the hippies, their age of Aquarius didn't come. They were all kind of in rehab trying to get over drugs. They were still um, hitting the reefer, as the kids say, and they were depressed. And so they did this mopey, folky singer-songwriter stuff, and it's horrible. It's just treacly, and it's boring, and it's because there's no edge to it. I like one dude, one guitar singing. That's fantastic. The 70s variant of it was just bleak and depressing and weak and lame and miserable. And it's like a bunch of people regretting the terrible decisions they made in the late 60s. And I hated that music so bad. The early 70s in music, it was rough. It was really rough. It was very depressing. And uh, I grew up around it because for the next decade or two, Boomers would play this stuff all the time. You'd hear it everywhere, and it's just the worst, most grating thing. So a uh, good good job uh, picking up that young demo, getting James Taylor out there. Maybe you can make a TikTok of it, see if it goes viral. So uh, once again, Biden has a complete tin ear. He also um, doesn't seem to be helping matters. There might be a national rail strike, and it's been underreported. Finally today, people are talking about it. I heard about it over the weekend that that might happen. 
uh, within a week or so, Amtrak has suspended any travel plans um, outside of the Eastern Corridor, but they've suspended any kind of travel plans for the rest of the country as of uh, the 15th, I believe is the day. So everybody's preparing for this big national rail strike. Um, obviously, it will affect passengers who use rail, which I know is big in the East. It's like non-existent out here in the West because very long distances. I actually, I thought it'd be kind of cool to uh, take the fam on a train trip up the Pacific coast and maybe take a train. You can catch it. You can't even catch it in Phoenix. You have to go to this uh, small exurb outside of town, about 40 miles or so, catch the train there, go to California, then go all, go up to like San Diego, then go all the way up the coast to Seattle. It's like, that would be a cool vacation, but it's insanely expensive. It's way more expensive than just buying a plane ticket to Seattle, of course. And American trains, they're not the most comfy things. And I'm like, yeah, what if one of the kids gets motion sick? Then it's going to be a complete disaster. So we decided not to do that. But I could not believe how expensive it was. And this was like 10 years ago. I was checking prices. Insanely expensive. Way more expensive than air travel. Far less convenient, of course. And usually when you're on a train, when you're in a city area, it's in the worst part of the city, so it's really gross-looking, depressing, and decaying. The only time I rode Amtrak regularly is when I was in the Navy, lived north of Chicago, and it was very easy to hop a train to visit all my relatives. I got a bunch of relatives in Michigan. Very convenient because it wasn't a very long trip or anything like that. Um, but yeah, that trip is going to be canceled um, throughout the Midwest. Uh, the Acela, I guess. Maybe they'll keep that operating somehow since politicians like it and wealthy people in the media like Acela which I have never ridden on. Um, they intended that to be kind of like the American bullet train, which it most certainly is not, but uh, it's not as uh, rough as normal rail travel. So uh, Pete Buttigieg, get on your phone, maybe pay attention to this. This is supposed to be your bailiwick handling train stuff. Um, the, the big bad news though, is not about pastures. It's about shipping stuff like shipping coal from West Virginia and Pennsylvania, shipping um, farm crops, to processing centers, it could get ugly. And uh, the fact that uh, Biden just sat on his hands, he loves his union buddies, so he probably is not in a good position to uh, mess up the strike. They just want more money, of course, and uh, Biden is pro-labor. So this is probably going to be a big old mess. This Fetterman fellow in Philly, I, ju I just wanted the alliteration, sorry. Uh, Fetterman, he's running for the Senate against Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, and uh, he has been putting off a debate because he's basically debilitated by the stroke he had the day or the night before the primaries took place, um, and he's just been in hiding. They're releasing very selected, uh, selectively edited videos of him talking, and they have to make it very selectively edited because he cannot speak very well. So they try to, his campaign tries to string together coherent sentences where they can find them and put them all together so it sounds like he's having a... A good conversation with the folks, but it's not going very well. And the issue that he's having now is uh, the press is even calling on him uh, to say, hey, you've got to debate. So he finally scheduled a debate with Dr. Oz, and it's going to be the week before the election. He pushed it out as far as he possibly could. He's hoping he, he can recover somewhat. And that's the thing with this. It's not hitting a guy for having a health condition. It's just accepting that this health condition, this particular one, it, he will not be able to function in the U.S. Senate where your job is gland handing, talking to people, giving long speeches on the floor. You can't do that if you can't even speak to your supporters, if you can't even do a TV interview. Um, so 
Yeah, but good for him for finally agreeing to a debate. Also, Herschel Walker is finally going to debate. Um, he is running for the Senate in Georgia, and he hasn't been big on debating Warnock, but now Warnock is panicking because he's actually down in the polls. So Warnock has finally, um, and Herschel Walker, they both finally agreed to debate. They're going to do that a couple weeks before the election. In other debate news here in my uh, home state of Arizona, as Jackie Daytona says it, they're having a governor's race. Katie Hobbs is the Democrat. She's currently Secretary of State. And Carrie Lake is a Republican, would be a first-time office holder. Carrie Lake has been itching for a debate, and Katie Hobbs has been pushing it away, pushing it away. Finally, Katie Hobbs came out, started this week, saying, I will not debate. I refuse to debate. Um, she also refused to debate in her primary. Once again, the press, uh, they are not Lake fans. They're just brutalizing her over this. All these people have been complaining about Lake for months. Now they're blasting Katie Hobbs. And I'm sorry, this is a slap in the face to voters. If you want the voters vote, you can talk to them. It's not that difficult. Even if you have a bad debate, a lot of people have bad debates, end up winning the election. So it's just really lame. And to see uh, several of these Democrats trying to put off and avoid debates, at least they're finally knuckling under and actually showing up to talk to the voters, which is kind of what a campaign is supposed to be about. Biden could get away with a basement strategy because you have the pandemic going on and he's 113 years old. People gave him a little bit of a pass on that and uh, they wanted the news cycle to revolve around Trump. Well, Katie Hobbs is what, mid-40s, I think. Fetterman, just over 50, I think. Warnock, pretty young dude. Y you can't just hide. You cannot hide and expect people to vote for you. You need to be out and about. So uh, I'm glad some debates are finally going on there. Oh, also Joe Biden, after a celebratory look, inflation's only 8.3% now um, after his big party with teen heartthrob James Taylor. He wanted to vote. So he, you know, obviously just filled out an absentee vote and voted. No, 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 no. He took the helicopter to the airport, got on a jet, flew to Delaware, Voted in Delaware, got on the jet, flew back to Washington. Oh, that's uh, Calvin the Wonder Beagle making an appearance. Have you heard the ringing of his uh, ear flapping? Anyway, gets an airplane, flies back to Washington, gets from Washington's, took the helicopter to the White House so he could vote. We paid for that, folks. Way to conserve fuel, Joe. So uh, glad he went out there and voted. I guess it was a stunt to show how important it was to vote in person, which I don't understand. I thought Democrats have been all about mail-in voting which he could have done for free. Well, for the price of a stamp, but he probably gets a special deal on that. Being the president and all, I doubt you even realize this, but the Emmys happened Monday night. I think they were usually on Sunday and uh, early results are in lowest ratings Emmys have ever had. I, I don't, I don't even know what's current with the TV shows. And I, I think people are less interested to the Oscars as well, but they're less interested in TV because everything's streaming now. And people haven't seen all the shows. They can compare, oh, here are the five uh, nominees up for best TV show of the year. It's like, oh, that one was on Apple TV. I don't have that. That one was Netflix. Oh, I, yeah, I, di I did see that one. Oh, this is on cable. Sorry, I cut the cord. I couldn't watch this. So everything is so divided up now. It's uh, kind of tough to say this is the best show. I'm sure uh, everybody had their own picks in that. There's certainly some great shows out there. But uh, who can keep up with it? Um, award shows in general seem to be circling the drain. Um, I guess holding a big chunk of your electorate or let's say your customer base. Sorry, I've been talking too much politics. Holding uh, your audience in contempt might not be a winning strategy. 
I'm sure there were uh, speeches against uh, ultra-mega semi-fascists or something like that. I have no idea. And nobody else does either because nobody actually watched the Emmys. Interesting poll coming out of California. San Francisco Chronicle, uh, not exactly a bulwark of right-leaning commentary. They did a poll of 1,600 San Francisco residents saying, what do you think about the future of the city? Do you think it's getting better or getting worse? It did not go well for San Francisco. 37%, more than a third of respondents said, we plan to move in, within the next three years. When they focused on young people only, 54% said, yeah, we're leaving within three years. Uh, they asked people, do you think uh, things will likely get better here? Something like 77% said, no, it's probably going to get worse. One-party governance, um, it has its uh, problems, to say the least. And now let's do the song of the week. This is actually recommended. I want to give a hat, hat tip out to Anna Z in Austin. Uh, she uh, sent this recommendation in. And I went, oh, this is a good track. It's a band called Nation of Language. They um, have two albums out. Last one, including this song, was released last year. Boy, talk about new wave nostalgia. Having lived through it the first time, I appreciate younger bands. This band's from Brooklyn. They started listening to old, very early new wave, um, especially orchestral maneuvers in the dark, known as OMD to the music hipsters. But um, they started listening to their first couple albums, which were really rudimentary, keyboardy synthesizer stuff. And uh, they went, okay, that's our style of music, and we're going to explore it more. But here is This Fractured Mind. songs sound alike, but this really feels like, yeah, the first Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark album with Depeche Mode's first album, Speak and Spell. Just a very similar feel, so uh, check them out if you want. They're on our Spotify playlist. There's a link to that in the show notes, and that is it for the podcast. Believe it or not, I have a different Limbaugh on as my guest next week. That is a secret. You will find out when I release the next episode on Tuesday of next week. Thanks very much for listening. Please, if you have not subscribed, please do. If you have not reviewed us or uh, ranked us via stars, please give us five stars and write a glowing review. That's always greatly appreciated. Thank you again for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Ricochet. Join the conversation.